Hey guys, good afternoon. It's been a while I recorded the podcast last. Well, um, I had to take a break. I had to re-examine many of the things I believed. Um, the term for it is um, deconstruction. Yeah, I had to, you know, deconstruct my faith. And um, this episode of this podcast is one of the many, many fruits of my deconstruction. Just as a caveat, a disclaimer, I might say things you don't find correct. So however you get to view this or get to listen to this, whether via WhatsApp or Twitter, if you have issues with what I've said, just, you know, hit me up and let's discuss it with all civility. So, um... We're going to be talking about the wrath of God, and this is such a popular and well-spoken of topic amongst all circles, Pentecostal, Protestants, everybody seems to have a pence or two about this. And I believe that there is a balance to what the wrath of God is. I don't think make God look like a tyrant, and I'll be sharing that with you. But first off, let's pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for your fellowship with us. We thank you for including us in Christ. And we pray that as we commence, you grant us all guidance in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah. So, the wrath of God. Um, Let's see. I've heard many people speak about this topic. Um, apologies majorly. And they'll try to say that, um, they try to say that God is the, you know, God of the whole universe and he retains all rights to, you know, um, especially when examining the sins in the Old Testament, the genocide and all that, he retains all rights to, you know, kill and give life and all of that. And they try to use this as an argument when debating evil about how human beings um, shouldn't act God and all of that. And that view is actually quite problematic because they try to um, metaphorize God's love and God's wrath. And it's quite problematic when you metaphorize God's love. Since the Bible says in the book of 1 John 4 that God is love. Um, and Jesus came to show that his Abba, his Father, is actually love so if we take that away from him and we take away the fact that jesus said love and the prophets could be summed up in love god and love your neighbor and the fact that jesus gave us only one commandment which was love you'd get a really really messy theology or theodicy as it may seem because theodicy is um the branch of theology that has to deal with showing god as non-evil so um what then does the wrath of god mean so let's establish something let me give a quote by um is it brad brian zand he said god has a face and he looks like jesus and i agree totally with that god has a face and he looks like jesus so if we're going to start theology from anywhere we are going to have to start from christ we are going to have to start from the image of god revealed through jesus not as not because um you cannot start from anywhere else, but simply because Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 to 3 says, At several points in history, God had spoken 
to the fathers through the prophets. He had spoken in different ways. But in these last days, he had summed up his speech in his son. And which is why many people say Jesus is what God has to say about himself. Why? The book of um, John chapter 1 says, at the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was gone. Oh, the word was God. And verse 14 says, And the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, which shows us that the word of God, in fact, was Jesus. The Greek word for word there is logos, the logic of God, the rationale of God, the reasoning faculty of God, the thoughts of God, the mind of God, the speech of God is Jesus. So if we are going to know more about this deity called God, then we would have to start with um. Jesus, it would only be saying to start with Jesus. But before we, you know, go through the mass of things I have in my head to say about this, let's go to Genesis 1. Genesis 1 verse 1 says, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And I want to, the, the word used for God there is Elohim. And what we actually do not know is, many of us know that the word is Elohim. What we do not know is Elohim is a plural word which has made many historians say that um, the Jews were poly, um, polytheistic people and they decided to, you know, pick one God, which is the same thing that happened in Islam. Um, according to Islamic tradition, in the Kaaba, there were about 360-something gods, and one of them, Allah, revealed himself to Muhammad and so on and so forth. So... They claim that the Jews also were polytheistic and they chose one God that, okay, there was a big God, El, the Almighty God, and then there were lesser gods and they tried to include Yahweh under this, you know, lesser God theology. But a problem comes there, the fact that we don't find traces of this in the Bible. So what happened was Elohim is a word that the meaning became lost in transit. The fact that when God revealed himself to the fathers, he never revealed himself as a as more than one. Let me put it that way. So we find in Deuteronomy, the Israelites declaring a creed, saying the Lord our God is one God, yeah? And um, I'm trying not to make this a sermon. I just want to rant about this. So um, we find the Israelites saying the Lord our God is one God. And that was the rationale behind the running of Israel for years, for decades, for centuries, that God, El, Elohim, is just one. He reveals himself in several ways, but he's just one. So in the Old Testament canon, we had a merciful God, who was one God, he had a merciful side, he had a compassionate side, he had an angry side, he had a just side, and everything. Now, the problem with that view also is, it presents, there's a um, there's a Greek God, Janos, is the one after whom Gen- the month January is named. And Janos is a God who has two faces. He has one face at the front and one face at the back, both representing different parts of himself. Old Testament theology has painted God into um, a Janus kind of God, yeah? And um, most of these things come from um, anthropomorphism. Anthropomorphism is when you attach um, human attributes to God. Let's just put it that way, roughly. So they attach human attributes to E.g., an example of this is... um. God awakes from sleep like a man of war, something like that. I think that's somewhere in Psalms. Now, we know God does not sleep. 
but then it's a metaphor. And the problem becomes when people literalize metaphors. So these things are plenty all through the Old Testament scriptures. And the prophets, when they spoke, expected these things to be read as metaphors. For instance, you would not imagine that God awaking out of sleep was a reality. You would not imagine that um, God folding his hands, as recorded in Psalms 84, if I'm correct, or 81, if I'm correct now, is literal. But then we would imagine that, oh, God, the wrath of God is literal. We would imagine that the compassion of God is literal and so on and so forth. So I was talking about the um, polytheistic tendency of Judaism, although it wasn't revealed. So when Jesus came, he came and then he said in John chapter 8 and John chapter 10, he made reference, he wanted to stone him those two times. He said, I and my father are one. And the Jews wanted to stone him. And on one incident, he said, why do you want to stone me? And he said, you are making yourself one with God. And he replied, but he, if he called them gods on whom um, the word of God was given, something like that. Um, if you call them gods to whom the scriptures were given and the scripture cannot be broken. So Jesus made himself literally one with God. In John chapter 14, 15, 16, when he spoke about the Holy Spirit, he spoke about the Holy Spirit in the same context of God. So we had um, a trinity of gods. And Jesus tried to show that they were all one. Now, it explains something that had been hidden all through the years. The name Elohim showing a plural. I hope I've not lost anybody. So, Thus, we have a trinity of gods. Now, um, let me permit me to present a theory. Permit me to present a theory. Um, I'd like to say grace is a dance. And I mean an actual dance. Grace, what we all know as grace, is a dance. And what do I mean by this? There's a relationship that a trinity shares. Um, God, the Word, the Holy Spirit. There's a relationship they share. It is pulsating. It is living. Is alive and they exist. So when God said, Let there be light, according to the scripture that says, In him we live, we move and have our being, that scripture wasn't talking specifically to Christians, it was talking about the people in the world. It simply means that creation happened within God. How would I put it clearly? Um, creation wasn't something that God oversaw. Creation was something that God sat upon. How would I put it? Um, let's say you have a house and then you begin to make things in the house. It is something like that. So when man sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, and I, I'm sure we all know how that translates to original sin for everybody born of Adam, everybody who is a man or a woman. When they sinned, what happened was their perception of God was distorted. Let's go to the tree of knowledge, um, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, yeah? Um, now, many preachers have said so many things about it. I have nothing against what they have said. I'm not even presenting a new model. What I want to say is when um, Eve took the fruit of the tree and she ate and she had the knowledge of what is good and what is evil. She became shut out of a relationship with God. Same with Adam. 
Why? On the basis that when they were in God and when they were engulfed in their relationship with God, because man was created in relationship with God. We have it in Genesis that God used to, you know, take walks, more or less metaphorical, in the Garden of Eden. So they had a pulsating relationship with God, Adam and Eve. So when they ate of that fruit, a problem came. They knew what was good and they knew what was evil. Previously, they were perfectly innocent and all they knew was God. They did not know what was not God. When they ate of the fruit, the knowledge of good and evil necessitates that they are introduced into morality. Now, oh my God, I'm starting to make this an apologetic piece. Um, let's see. Morality, as far as I'm concerned, is not necessarily a good thing. When Adam and Eve were engulfed in their relationship with God, they only knew love. They didn't know good, they didn't know evil. They only knew love. When they ate of the tree, which gave the knowledge of good and evil, they were introduced into morality and they knew what evil was. And God made a statement. He said, they have become like us. Lest they take of the fruit of the tree of life and live forever. Let's take them out of the garden. And then there was a sword which was guarding the tree of life. And usually we interpret this to show wrath that God was, you know, pissed and he shot them out. This is very, very far from the truth. And we see this in the response of Adam and Eve to the actions of God. God took works, his usual works and the garden, and um, he says, Adam, where are you? And Adam said, Adam was in hiding. Why was Adam in hiding? Previously, when Adam was in tandem with God, all he knew was God's love. God's, all he knew was God's love. No variations. God's love. And when he sinned, or when he ate of the knowledge which gave uh, when he ate of the tree, which gave knowledge of good and evil, he knew that he had done evil, and he expected that the recompense or the um, consequence of his action should be anger from God. But we don't see God showing any anger. In fact, we find God clothing them. God didn't show anger. And when God was speaking to them, speaking to the serpent, speaking to Eve, speaking to Adam, he merely read out the consequences of their sins. He didn't impute consequence of sin upon them. Because the deal is, sin corrupted Adam and Eve's perception of God. They began to see God as something that he was not. They began to see God as something that he was not when they were in relationship with him. Now, hold that thought. The Bible says, Paul said in, I think, 2 Corinthians 4, if our gospel be hid, it is hid unto those whom the prince of this world has darkened their understanding, that seeing they might not see, hearing they might not hear, and they might not come to the knowledge of God. Now, what happened there is exactly what happened in the Garden of Eden. Their understanding of God was darkened by the mere act of stepping outside the confines of love. What is the confines of love? Basically, as I said, they were engulfed in relationship with God. They knew God's love. And when they ate of the knowledge of the tree, when they ate of the tree, they could discern between good and evil. They knew they had done evil. They felt there should be a consequence. They felt God should be angry. And that feeling 
was not something they had known before. That feeling came as a result of their counsel, of their understanding being darkened by sin, being corrupted by sin. Now, let's step out of the Garden of Eden. So, I would want to proceed um, or present um, something also here. There is the active participation of God's wrath and of the wrath of God, not God's wrath, um, and, the, and the passive participation of the wrath of God. Passive in that the one prophet comes and he begins to say, oh, God is expressing his wrath and all that. Active in that we see some certain acts, e.g. the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we see, oh, God did it. So the active and the passive. Let's deal with the passive first. Now, the passive participation of God's wrath is basically a metaphor. If you observe the verses where these things are found, you would see that these things are metaphorical. But before I deal with their metaphorical aspects, oh my God, this has become a theological piece. I'm dead. God. <laughs> All right. So I'll try to tone it down, tone my language down, make it, make it very, very simple. So there's something called divine consent. And this is when God consents to our decision, e.g., consenting to what happened in the Garden of Eden, consenting to allowing man rule his life and, you know, continue in the cycle, consenting to allow man not, what's the word, not accept Jesus when Jesus, you know, gave his life and reconciled the whole world to himself. Consent, that's consent. It's called divine consent. Now, when God consents to the consequences of our action, in the Bible, that those things are termed as God's wrath. Let me present a model. Psalms chapter 7, from verse 13 downwards, in verse 13 and verse 14, we see David saying that God is preparing his sword and he wants to strike down the enemy and he will kill them in very, very gruesome ways. In, I think, 15 downwards, we see David saying that that same incident actually is that Okay, no. David spoke about them in past tense, that God had already done that. And in 15 downwards, we see David saying that, oh, um, actually, what happened is these guys actually brought these things upon themselves in that, like, they waged war and then war was waged back and they died. And the idea was God did it. Why? God consented to it. What do I mean by God consented to it? He allowed them to do it. Do we get it? I hope we get it. So when God allows us to do something that results in a consequence, it's in a consequence which we enjoy or suffer. It is termed the wrath of God. Another incidence is um, Lamentations chapter 2. In Lamentations chapter 2, Jeremiah laments that um, God had, you know, turned his face against Israel and had started, you know, destroying Israel, expressing his wrath and all of that. Now, in Lamentations chapter 3, a very popular verse, I think verse 15, the Bible says, um, It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed, for his compassions faileth not, but they are new every morning, great is thy faithfulness. That's, a, that's an obvious contradiction, if we are going to say the least. So what happens? It is simple, as I said, divine consent. What happened there? If we are going to deal with the context, we would see that what happened there was the Israelites reaped the consequences of their action, not the consequence of maybe sinning against God or anything, but that they waged war against someone or they acted in a way against someone or their military strategy was 
wrong in a way. It backfired. And then because the Israelites were so in touch with God, it was termed the wrath of God as a metaphor, which is the repercussion or nemesis of our actions or of the actions of the guys in the Old Testament is termed the wrath of God. I can keep bringing examples, but I just want to present this model because there are too many examples and I don't want to preach this or do I don't have started preaching this. So you can, you know, try to look for incidents. I think there's one incident in Exodus where Exodus 13, if I'm correct, where God is saying he will visit his wrath. No, he will actually kill them and if they don't do this and kill them if they don't do this. Now, the problem with such verses is they don't add up to the Abba of Jesus. They don't add up to the Father of Jesus. So what happens there is we cannot begin to say, okay, um, Moses said rubbish and this is not what God said and this and this and that. But then the model works in that. That's the model I gave. In that we see that um, these things actually are, are the repercussions, exactly. These things are the repercussions of these people's action, and God is consenting to it. Now, remember that I said that the man, man up until Christ, his opinion about God is darkened by sin. Unfortunately, this includes Moses. And I think this is one of the controversial things I would say. This includes Moses. So when God consents, we find something like, oh, God is saying he will kill them and all of that, and some funny statements. That is for the passive aspect of the wrath of God. Let's we are still going to go to the New Testament and then we'll round up from there. So the active aspect of the wrath of God, God visiting his wrath, his power upon people. My Sodom and Gomorrah is a very, very good example. So what really happened in Sodom and Gomorrah? Well, let me present a model for interpreting such verses. Um, whenever you see that um God, something is attributed to God, a direct incident of God's wrath, you would find that these things happen because of, what's the term now? Natural, um, what's the name? Wow. Natural disasters. Yes, natural disasters. Pestilence, famine, diseases, and so on and so forth. Let me bring an incident in... Numbers chapter 21 or so, we find um, an Israelite, um, Israelites bringing Moabites to sleep with in the camp, and we find Phineas striking one of such people with his spear, and he was, and he was you know, commended for his zeal. Afterwards, about 23,000 people died. In First Corinthians chapter 10, Paul brings that incident, and let me try to read it out. Paul's interpretation of the incident in um, First in um, Numbers 21. So, 1 Corinthians 10, he says, um, oh yeah, neither let us tempt Christ as, okay, let me use the one of the serpents. I cannot find that already now. My eyes are acting up. Let me just read one of the ones I find. Neither let us tempt Christ as some of them. This is 1 Corinthians 10 verse 9. Also tempted and were destroyed of serpents. Neither murmur ye as some of them also murmured and were destroyed of the destroyer. Now all these things happened unto them, for examples, and they were written for our admonition unto whom the ends of the world are come. And 13 says, They have no temptation take you, but as is common to man, for God is faithful, and so on and so forth. Now Paul was trying to draw a contrast between um, 
Old Testament tribulations and New Testament tribulations. And you were starting to say, this is the same rationale in, I think, Hebrews chapter 2. Um, uh, that says, what's that word again? Um, I really cannot remember. Okay, how shall we escape if neglect? So great is salvation that was spoken first by, if the word spoken first by angels unto the fathers received the just recompense, how much more the word spoken to us now by his son? And so on and so forth. That's like a huge topic on its own because it shows the administration of Israel and the giving of the law and all of that. So, but let's 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 step away from there. Um, Paul says these guys were destroyed by the destroyer. Let's get to John chapter ten, verse ten. The Bible says, <laughs> the Bible says, for the, um, the thief comes not but to kill, to steal, and to destroy. I recognize that the thief there is not talking about Satan. Or at least Jesus did not say it was talking about Satan. But then the next verse shows that Jesus contrasted it and he's trying to, and he said, but he also, you know, but he doesn't do that. He doesn't rule that way. Rather, he gives life. So if we contrast those two things, we have to say, okay, there is someone who does not give life. Let's call that someone Satan. All right? For the sake of this conversation, let's call that someone Satan. So Paul says, these guys who were destroyed, were destroyed of Satan. As I said, what did I say before? Divine consent. In that, there is sin, and there is a consequence of sin. The people's opinion of God being darkened was a consequence of sin. God could have decided not to consent to it, but he did consent to it. If he did not, free will. Timod. <laughs> but luckily, he consented to it. Oh, it depends on where you are looking at. Luckily or luckily, he consented to it. And people's opinions of him were, you know, darkened. And Paul says, these guys who were killed, weren't killed by God. They were killed by the destroyer. And we know God is not the destroyer. At least the God of Jesus Christ is not the destroyer. Permit me, actually, to bring up something from church history. There was a guy. His name was Marcion. His name is Marcion, and, or was Marcion, either way. And he, um, let's see, he presented, a, he was a church heretic. And I really do not blame him. I really do not blame him. He presented a dualistic God. Not dualistic. He presented two gods. He stated that the God of the New Testament and the God of the Old Testament were two different gods. However, it seems that the God of the Old Testament was more supreme to the God of the New Testament. The God of the Old Testament, Yahweh, is stated was an evil, malicious tyrant. And the God of the New Testament, obviously, we know what his opinion on that would be. And it so happened that the God of the Old Testament... Um, how, how will I put it now? Yes, he stated that it would be unfair for anyone to bring a child into this world, a world orchestrated by the God of the Old Testament, who takes pleasure in killing. You get. So that was his view of God, very, very dualistic. And many Christians have, you know, fallen into that pit hole in different variations, except they are actually pleased with it. So we see someone saying, yeah, God is God is good, God is good, God is good. But he, you know, if you sin, he can strike you down with an illness. I used to believe that, that oh, if I sinned, um, if something went bad in my life, I would say, oh, it was probably because um, I did something wrong. So let's say if I sin today and then maybe tomorrow I get a bad test score, I'd be like, oh, this is why I got a bad test score and all of that. It, is, it was a very, very messy, it was, 
that theology is very, very messy and it belongs in a piece of hell because God is good. The God of Jesus is good. So we interpret the Old Testament with the God of Jesus. And having seen that, we have seen the passive aspect of the wrath of God and we have seen the active aspect of the wrath of God. We have seen that the active aspect either happened as, you know, natural occurrences, which God now, yes, 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 the meat of it. Whenever these things were going to happen, we see God coming in and trying to intervene, which shows that God was actually not the orchestrator. Now, let me relate this to the happenings of the cross before I explain what I mean by this. People like to say the wrath of God was poured out on Jesus. So God killed Jesus to save us from himself. That's the and that's the bulk of the theology. So in the Old Testament, the same interpretation of that was God was sending um, hailstones on Sodom and Gomorrah, but he sent angels to save Lot and his family from himself. That's rubbish. That's, that's like rubbish. So what actually happened was, and what actually happens is, in every single, what's the word now, incidence of the wrath of God actively showing in the Old Testament, we are seeing, um, how would I put it? A protective side of God, actually. We see that these things happen by natural occurrences, although they were attributed to God. And we see that God moves to protect people from these things. And it would not make sense to move drastically to protect something from someone from something you orchestrate. It makes no sense at all. So we see when Abraham was interceding with God on behalf of Sodom and Gomorrah, it was the case of God actually wanted to participate and rescue. The same incident is the same incident that happened at the flood. The same is the same that happened when Satan moved now um, in First Kings, First Samuel, sorry, and First Chronicles. We find two incidences: David numbering the people of Israel. Uh, this is the final um, example I would explain. Um, oh my God, this would be quite long. I pray you have the patience to finish it. So, but I should end in fifteen minutes by God's message. So we find um um what was I say? We find oh oh my god, oh my god! I'll say something along the lines of yeah. So we find the protective aspect of God in these things. In First Samuel First Chronicles, we find Satan moving um David to number the people of Israel. However, the writer of First Samuel seems to think it was God. The writer of First Chronicles rejects that idea and he puts Satan. And obviously, we have to side with the writer of First Chronicles and say it was Satan. Why? Jesus, God, doesn't inflict, doesn't deceive people. It doesn't. No, it doesn't. And I'm sure at this point in time, I've, you know, destroyed the inerrancy of scripture. And I'm really sorry if you believe in it. The fact that scripture is inerrant, I'm really sorry. It's not my fault. I just have to do this. So, um, and we find that when um, David asked for forgiveness, God gave him options. These are the three things that could happen. Pick one. And he picks the one that he should fall into the hands of God. And we find an angel, supposedly, and the reason I said supposedly, because what was actually happened was it was, a, it was an outbreak of a disease. Let's say something like the Ebola virus. I was killing people. How do the Ebola virus doesn't kill that rapidly? But then you get my point. And until the point where David, you know, sacrificed and did some, yeah, sacrifice, but a threshing floor, 
The killings did not stop. And the fact is, people attribute this to God. Well, going by my model, that did not happen. On the basis that, as I said, let me put it this way. As I said, divine consent. Who put David to do this? Satan. I'll be according to First Chronicles. As I said, we are siding with the rise of First Chronicles. Who pushed David to do this? Satan. So, it's safe to assume that Satan simply wanted David in his realm of affairs. And that's the simple truth. I can try to... The deal is, I want to explain this thing so bad, but I don't want to be controversial so bad. So, I will just leave you to explain it with my model. Thank you very much. Now, let's come to the New Testament. It would be a lie to say that Jesus didn't present um, a wrathful God in the New Testament. It would be a big fat lie, actually. Because there are such examples that we are not going to shy away from them. One of them is a proverb. It's a parable, rather. Um, the parable of the talents in Matthew 22, 1 to 14, if I'm correct. And in um, the unprofitable servants, Matthew 24, the last few verses. Now, um, <laughs> let me put it this way. Who was Jesus telling the parable to? Who was telling the parable to the Pharisees? Both incidences. Each time, okay, okay, I'm sorry. Let me tell the parable. There was a king, one of them. There was a king. Okay, the one of Matthew 24. There was a king. He was organizing a marriage for his son. He sent people to go and, you know, bring them um, to... He sent people to invite people to this marriage. People disagreed. And what did the guy do? He started killing them. Now, that would align with the view of God in the Old Testament. But if you check the context of that verse, we find that Jesus was actually... He had been throwing shades at the Pharisees. So... Let me try to read that verse out, at least the context, so as we can, you know, get what I mean. I don't just want to impose a view that nobody sees. Matthew 24. Um, oh, I'm very sorry. I misplaced the parable. This is talking about the evil servant, his master delaying, and then accused the servant. Verse 51 says he caught him asunder. Very, very gruesome way to kill someone by chopping them to pieces. And we seem to believe that God is going to do this to some people. And that's very, very sick. And the reason I feel very, very sick is that if there is such a thing as free will and there's such a thing as God is love, why will God kill you because you rebuffed his offer of love? It's like a prince going to toast a lady and the king says, you can decide not to agree, but if you agree, if you don't agree, I will kill you. That's messy. And that's... No, 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 no. That's not that's not the God of the Bible. No, that's not the God of the Bible. So, as I said, I want to read the context to you. Oh, my. Let me check the one of Matthew 22. My eyes are, you know, playing games on me. Okay, yeah. Matthew 22. It begins from Matthew 21. That's for the context. Verse 42 says, Jesus said unto them, Did you never read the scripture, the stones which Buddha um, rejected? Um, 43, verse 43 says, The kingdom of God will be taken from you, given to a nation. He was speaking to the hypocritical Jews, namely the Pharisees. And in 22, he gives the parable of, um, yeah, the marriage I was talking about. Yeah, the marriage is in 22. And um, now, let's see. 
what happens, what actually happened is the ultimate question. Did you lose? Whenever Jesus tells this parable to the Pharisees, we find the distinction between the parables Jesus told to his disciples and the parables he told to the Pharisees and the parables he told to the general congregation. A disciple or a general congregation parable, an example of that is the parable of the lost son, the prodigal son, the lost coin, and the... Well, there's one other one. I've forgotten it. And the lost sheep. And... In there, we find the goodness of God. And I think that's the basis for this um, song, Reckless Love. We find that the lost son, this is the one that has free will. When he came back, he came back with the wrong opinion of God. He thought God would be angry, which was the father. And the father wasn't angry. Abinaw, the father wasn't angry. Rather, the father embraced him. He did not confess his sin. He did not repent. And that destroys evangelical theology. That destroys most of our theology. The prodigal son didn't repent. He didn't um, confess his sin. He just came, okay, if I would be a servant, you should not accept me as a servant. And the father was pleased. He was pleased with him. He accepted him. He killed. He made a party for him. So, back to this parable. There's not much time. Saying <laughs> this thing is actually quite touchy. I'm pretty sure it felt smoother in my head when I was deciding to do this podcast yesterday. I felt these things would be so easy to say. But I kind of have a um, reputation for saying untoward things. So I'm trying to tone that down. So what happened here was Jesus was showing them the essence of their theology. Now, the king in that story is not Jesus, is not God. Let me explain why it is not God. Jesus said, the kingdom of God can be likened to this. It is a simile. There is a similarity to the kingdom of God, to this incident. But it's also a dissimilarity because Jesus is not metaphorizing it. Now, oh my God. Mm. Let's say the parable of the lost lost son, prodigal son. As an example, Jesus doesn't make such statements before it. He simply jumps into it and he says, um, this and this happened. But right here, he's saying there are similarities between the kingdom of God and this. And if there are similarities, it simply means there are dissimilarities, which is um, there are differences. Now, the king in that story isn't, what's the name? He isn't, um, it's not, it's not God. The king in that story is actually the Roman Empire. If you are going to contextualize it, it's actually the Roman Empire. And Jesus was actually telling them that, you know, he had said it previously that if the stone which restaurant, um, chapter 21, verse 41 downwards, the stone, have you not read that the stone which the builders refused has become the head of the corner and the kingdom will be taken away from you, that's verse 22, and given to another nation. Now, this parable is explaining that concept. It's telling them that if you refuse the son, whom you have now. Who is telling you these things? What is going to happen is you are going to receive wrath, but this wrath is not going to be from me or my father. It's going to be from the empire that you so duly serve. Now, the, the similarities or the differences come in the fact that the Roman Empire didn't produce Jesus and so on and so forth. But then the message was quite clear in that this parable triggered the Pharisees and the deal is, we read scriptures, you know, for Rema, for inspiration and all that. But we should not miss these things that lie beneath the lines. 
He was saying this thing to the Pharisees. This parable triggered the Pharisees on the reason that he was telling them that, look, guys, if you reject me, the deal is you are going to receive the fruit of your labor. If you reject me, the Roman Empire is still going to come and kill you guys. And it did happen, the destruction of Jerusalem in 8070. Now, that is the model for interpreting this parable. Another parable of such. Now, let's go to you. The parable is about hell. Um, I will not take the ones that there are many, many, there are many Greek words, or I think there are about four or three, no, three Greek words used for hell in the Bible. Tartarus, Gehenna, and um, sure, is it sure? No, it's Hades, yeah. Surely it's Hebrews. Hades. So we have those three Greek words. Tartarus was used in, I think, First Peter. And it was said to be the habitation of the angels, which were cast out of heaven. Sheol is the place of the dead. That's not my business. I'm not talking about this. Gehenna actually is the body of my stuff. Mark chapter 9, Jesus talks about Gehenna. And once again, he's talking to the Pharisees. We notice that each time Jesus talks about hell or he talks about anything messy that has to do with wrath, he is never talking to sinners, boys, disciples. He is always talking to the Pharisees because of the latent hypocrisy in what they preach and what they practice. And by Pharisees, I use this term too much. I mean the priests, the Sadducees, the scribes, all of them in leadership. So, Jesus tells them that if your hand will take you to hell, cut it off. If your leg will take you to hell, cut it off. If this one will take you to hell, cut it off. For it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God maimed than for you to enter, well, for you to go to hell complete. Now, the deal is, how do the, the priests who serve in the temple, they have to be complete. What do I mean? Their, their skin must have no blemish, that's like leprosy. They must not be amputees at any point. They, like, their body must be complete. Like, that's the sum of it. Their body must be complete. And Jesus is telling them as a direct affront to them that if you want to enter heaven, or let me put it this way, your theology states that you must be complete to serve and please God. And you try to impose this upon other people. And I say unto you that it is actually better to please God maimed than for you to not please God unmaimed. Thus condemning they and their theology to hell. Do you get it? Like, it's more like a go-to-hell response. Or get away you, just, you know, Get out with this kind of theology. I don't want to uh, be vulgar, but I believe you get it. I really cannot explain this thing so much because I don't want this to surpass 45 minutes, and this is 42 minutes already. Now, there's also an incident where Jesus talks about the wrath of God directly, and he was not talking to the Pharisees. Where? John chapter 3, verse 36. Jesus says... Um, he that believeth in the Son has everlasting life, and he that believeth not on the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abideth on him. Now, this interpretation, we have to recognize that Jesus was under the law. Abi now. The book of Galatians chapter 3 and 4 says that one of them, I'm not sure which it is, but I know it's between both of them. Jesus was under the law. He lived under the law, prayed under the law. So the interpretation of the wrath of God here is what I gave for the passive interpretation of the wrath of God. So just apply that same meaning here. I believe you have that. 
uh, Paul also says something about the wrath of God. Romans chapter 5, verse 9. And I will be rounding it up with Paul because, you know, at least many of us consider him an authority in such matters. And if Paul talks about the wrath of God, who are we not to include the wrath of God in our theology? Um, Romans 5, 9. Much more than being now, let me read from 8 for context. But God commends his love towards us. I'm reading in KJV, but I'm turning down the earth and all that. In that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us. Oh my God, this will pass 45 minutes. I'm very, very sorry. Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Now, KJV says, because we are now justified by his blood, we will be saved from wrath through him. The problem here is, if you check other translations, e.g. NASB, a translation which are in whom or in which I am well pleased, you would find that they include of God, although they italicized it, which means that it was not there, because they tried to interpret it in a way that this wrath must mean something, and it must mean the wrath of God. I think NIV also does the same thing, and many, many other translations. But we thank God for the KJV writers. I have a lot of issues with KJV. Unfortunately, here, unfortunately, yeah, fortunately here, they did the right thing. They didn't include of God because in the original manuscripts, in all the manuscripts, there is no God there. It's simply God commends his love towards us. In that while we are yet sinners, Christ died for us, much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. What is wrath? Oh my. Brad Jesak, a Canadian theologian, calls it divine consent to our self-destructive ways. That's paraphrased. Divine consent to our self-destructive ways, which is exactly the meaning I gave, although I did not summarize it for the passive aspect of the wrath of God. So, now we have gotten it. I have tried my best to dismantle the wrath of God. So, what happened on the cross? Wasn't God pouring out his anger upon Jesus? Wasn't Jesus a sacrifice for our sins? Did God have to kill Jesus to forgive us our sins? Now, the deal with the cross is what we see happening on the cross was Jesus was made his scapegoat. And the priest, Caiaphas, actually makes the statement. I forgot where he made it, I'm sorry. But he actually makes the statement that there needs that one man die for all of them and all of that. And in the Old Testament theology, we find that there is actually a scapegoat. The priest will lay hands on a scapegoat, expunge the sins of the people on that scapegoat, and send the scapegoat out of the city. Important to note is Jesus dying out of the city. Now, Jesus was a scapegoat. The people of the world expressed their sin and their wrath because the wrath of God, as I have stated, basically is human wrath in a cycle. One person expresses wrath, an eye for an eye, basically. And what did Jesus say? He said, you have heard it said, an eye for an eye, but I say unto you, trying to put an end into to such cycle of anger, which culminates into the tag, the wrath of God. So what people did was they expressed their wrath upon Jesus. God does not have any wrath to express on Jesus. God reconciled the world the world to himself through Jesus, not necessarily by his death. Now, here's where it gets controversial. God forgives sins without blood. 
Hebrews 9 says, for without sin, there is no remission of sin. Remission there is from the Greek word for um, expiation. And there's expiation and then there's propitiation. Propitiation is a sacrifice for sin. Expiation is atonement. Atonement, I think I have to check my dictionary for this, means that to for a bridge, like for something to be brokered, for a peace to be brokered, like a ceasefire, something like that, for there to be peace, reconciliation, that's the word. So what Jesus Oh my God, this is running to 15 minutes, my God. What Jesus did was, with death on the cross, was for expiation. It was not because God needed a sacrifice for, for forgiveness of sins. God is not bloodthirsty. He reconciled the world to himself through Jesus. He did not plot the cross, but he actually anticipated it. So he planned it. So I believe that if Jesus had not died, if there had been no plan for Jesus to die, there would have been some way that Jesus would have reconciled the world to God. Yeah, there would have been a way that Jesus would have reconciled the world to God. We find Jesus going around and saying, your sins are forgiven. If God needed blood to forgive sins, that thing would not have been effective. Now, I want to say that even Jesus did not have wrath. The thief on the left side, and it was not actually a thief, it was a What's the word? A rebel. Let's call him a rebel. Yeah, he was a rebel. Both of them, thieves were no hanged on in the cross in the Roman Empire, rather rebels and people, enemies of states, and which was why um, Jesus was also hanged as an enemy of states or crucified on the cross, rather. So, Jesus loved both of them the same way. So, the theology that, oh, that one is going to paradise and the other one is going to hell, is rubbish. Trust me, it is. Because if God is love, ah, this is where my messy, controversial statements come in. Now, Jesus loved them both. And if he says he loved them, if one person misunderstood him, which has been stated that this misunderstanding is because of sin, it simply means that Jesus had already said that I do not judge God judges, he gave me the power to judge, but even I do not judge. It simply means that sin has its own consequence, and that is being shut out from God. I'm not going to say there's no place called hell. There's a place called hell, but the views of hell differ. There's eternal conscious torment, which is the classic view of hell, that people are burning forever and forever. There's annihilationism, which is that people die in hell, like they burn and they die. And that's the theology behind the look of fire. And then there is universalism, which believes that um, hell is a place of, um, how would I put it? Basically, you can still be redeemed from hell. And after judgment, you can still be redeemed. But I do not really want to go into that. But basically, we've sorted out God's love. We have seen that there is no such thing technically as the wrath of God. God doesn't visit wrath on anybody. And he didn't visit wrath on Jesus. The people expressed their wrath on Jesus as a scapegoat. Goats and Jesus in return, John chapter 12 says, And if I be lifted up, I will draw men unto myself. Now, they deal with Christians. You like um, many Christians when they preach have the idea that they are preaching because they want to save people from hell. That's not true, and that's not a correct rationale. When we preach, we want to reconcile people to God, we want to make people experience the love of God. My. Why? The Bible says, no money can, nobody can come unto me except the Father himself draw me, draw him 
unto me. The verse I quoted earlier, if our gospel be hid, it is hid because their, dark, their understanding is darkened. Now, this thing doesn't place liability on the hearer. It places liability on sin. So we can find that God's judgment in hell. Romans chapter 1, the wrath of God is revealed upon the ungodly. The wrath of God is actually revealed upon their sin. So it simply is that the hell theology, if we are to paint it in its rawest form, is actually judgment of sin, not of the person. But if I go further than this, I will become an heretic. So let, let's, let's stop there. Basically, God didn't expunge wrath on Jesus. He forgave the whole world through Jesus. But he could have forgiven the whole world without Jesus. Like, without the death of Jesus. That's what I mean. Not that no, he, had, he decided to forgive through Jesus. I'm sorry. But not through the death of Jesus. And now that I have said a lot of things... In some people's terms, second of tables. Ah, do forgive me if I've offended you or said so many controversial things. I'm sorry. But this is the basis of the gospel. God is love. There's something called negative theology. And negative theology is when we want to paint to God and we say, okay, these are the things that God is not. God is light and in him is no darkness at all. God is just and in him is no injustice. God is good and in him is no evil. God is love and in him is no wrath. Have this at the back of your mind. It will change how you think about God. Remember, grace is a dance. It is a relationship. When people get to see the love of God, they are included in it. There is no wrath in God. There is no darkness in God. There is certainly no sin. Or confusion in God. If Jesus wouldn't do it, God wouldn't do it. I'm not just sound, trying to sound deep. This is something that I had to grasp painstakingly. And this is what it is. In God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. And in Him is no variation or shadow of turning. He's not changing, and He doesn't have plans to change. Let us pray. Lord in heaven, we thank you for this grace to listen, to talk, to share the word. We thank you for teaching us, Holy Spirit. We ask that our understanding be blessed and that we increase in the knowledge of you. In Jesus' name we've prayed. Amen.